And so, Father, we ask now as we take this time, Lord, to just submit ourselves to your word. We pray that you would teach us and show us your truths. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning, and we're going to open up our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, as we just continue our verse-by-verse study in Mark's Gospel. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we'll make sure that you get one. Pastor Jim's going to walk off the platform, and as he's walking off, just raise your hand, and he'll slip you a Bible. We want you to be able to follow along with us. We're going to cover the first 29 verses of Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, if you'll turn there. Mark, second book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter 6. We finished the first five chapters of Mark's Gospel, so now we're going to move into chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. I do love hearing the turning of pages of the Bible. I think it's wonderful. And then when I stop hearing the turning, I'll start reading. Chapter 6, are you there? All right, let's read first three verses. Mark chapter 6, we read, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. And let's pray. Father, we just ask once again, as our hearts have been focused on you, that right now may our hearts receive your word. And Lord, once again, as we open up your word, we know that your word is alive and it's powerful and it touches our hearts, it pierces our hearts because as Hebrew declares, it is like a two-edged sword. So I do pray that our hearts would be pierced with your word and that our hearts would be like fertile soils. We saw a couple weeks ago in that parable that Jesus told that as our hearts are as good soil, as the seed is sown, that fruit is produced. And Lord, I pray that as fruit is produced, that fruit uh, of love for you, that fruit of desiring to walk with you, and that fruit of desiring to serve you, and whatever that might mean for us, to draw us, Lord, to yourself and to prioritize the things of the kingdom. And so we, again, are thankful that we can be in this place and we can be still right now. And Lord, I pray that we would, that, that we wouldn't be distracted in our minds or in this place. And uh, Lord, that now as we take in um, spiritual food, that we would be fed and uh, we would be touched, and we would be encouraged, and we would be uplifted. And so we give this time to study of your word to you, Lord, to teach us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Jesus here at this point in our study in Mark's gospel is making his way from Galilee where he has been ministering to the masses, that is the great multitudes is the terms that Mark is using to the crowds that had gathered and pressing in on Jesus. And of course, Jesus, as we have read, has been healing people of every kind of sickness and disease. And we end at chapter 5 with Jesus bringing a healing to a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. As she broke through the crowds, as she 
pressed in, and then she would touch the hem of his garment, and she would be healed immediately. And at the same time, we know that Jesus was making his way to the ruler of the synagogue's house, Jairus, to, to go and minister to his daughter that was near death. And we know at that point that word would come that uh, your daughter is is dead. Don't bother to teach her any longer. But we saw that Jesus would go into that home of that that ruler's house, and he would raise that 12-year-old girl from the dead. And so his fame has been spreading all throughout Galilee, and, and his works are being talked about. And now Jesus makes his way from that area of the Sea of Galilee where he was, in that area of Capernaum, which is nestled right there on the north shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. That's what it means when, in verse 1, we read, he came to his own country. Speaking of Nazareth, Nazareth, we know that that's where he would be raised, in the carpenter shop. And Jesus himself, as verse 3 tells us, that he was a carpenter as well. Remember that Jesus did not start his public ministry until he was 30 years old. And so before that, as he's a teenager, as he's a young man, he was working working in the carpenter shop there in Nazareth where he was raised. He was born in Bethlehem, but being raised in this little village in the Galilee region. And so he would be making this journey from Capernaum over to Nazareth. It's about a 20-mile journey. And verse 1 also declares to us that his disciples are with him. And he would go into the synagogue there on the Sabbath day, and he would begin to teach. And the people marveled. They were astonished at his wisdom. And we've already seen in Mark's gospel that as he was in the Galilee region, that as he's teaching, that the people saw and heard and were astonished at, it, at his teaching because not only is he teaching with great wisdom, but also we know that he is teaching with great authority as well. And in the gospel narratives, we read Jesus would oftentimes say, I say unto you. So that's why the people are marveling because of his wisdom, because of the authority in which he's teaching with. And it's interesting here that as the people here in Nazareth are hearing Jesus, remember they knew Jesus. He grew up in this, this little town of, of Nazareth. Now, if you go to Nazareth today, when we make our trip to Israel this May, we will go through Nazareth, and it's a fairly large town. It's over 100,000 people, and it's very spread out in the hills there of Samaria. But we know that back 2,000 years ago, it was only a small village probably a couple hundred people. And with it being a small village, a couple things, everybody knew each other at that time. And there, Joseph and Mary would, would have their family and they would raise their family there. And also we know that Nazareth was not very significant as far as the world is concerned. Nothing of significance really was in Nazareth except that Jesus was raised there. And we also know that there was kind of a put-down attitude towards the town of Nazareth. We get that from John chapter 1 because you remember that it was Philip that came to Nathanael and said, we have found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael's response was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
I mean, that's an insignificant little place. It's just a dumpy little town. What do you mean he's from Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And so that was the attitude of that little village. And as far as the world was concerned, had no importance whatsoever. And so we see that the reaction of the people here at this point, as Jesus is teaching, they had heard that he had done mighty works. And they're saying, isn't he the carpenter, the one who grew up in the carpenter shop? Isn't he the the son of Mary? We know him. Now make note of that when it says there in verse 3, the son of Mary. Now as we read that, that's very natural. Of course he's the son of Mary, and he had brothers and sisters, some of them named there, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But they did not say the son of Joseph. And that's very significant, especially at this time, because in ancient Israel, uh, when you go throughout, for example, the Old Testament, we read genealogy all the time in the Old Testament. We're going to see that as we're going to start reading about David uh, here in just um, a few chapters in 1 Samuel. David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. Genealogy is very, very important to know your genealogy, where you came from. And it's always in the father's name, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. So that's an important thing that we're reading here because we see that they're saying, isn't he the son of Mary? Now, you and I, when we read that, of course we know he's the son of Mary. We know that Jesus was born of a virgin, but they didn't see it that way. And as they say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't it the son of Mary? I believe, really, it's an insult. They're offended by him. It's an insult that they're giving towards him. And keep in mind, for 30 years now, Mary, as well as Jesus, had to live with the rumors that she had Jesus not born of a virgin. You see, they don't realize who he is. They're not accepting him as the Messiah. They're not accepting him as the Son of God right now. And as far as they're concerned, yes, they thought they knew Jesus, but he was born, you know, he's an illegitimate child. And those rumors would spread for all those years. Matter of fact, so much so that in John chapter 8, when the Pharisees are disputing with Jesus, Jesus had claimed that in John chapter 8 that he's the light of the world and that he has come from the Father and that he's ministering in the authority of the Father. And so they're upset at him, and they begin to dispute with Jesus. And when they were disputing with him and upset with him, they would say, well, we weren't born of fornication. That's what the religious leaders said to Jesus. We're not born of fornication. The implication was you were. You were. It was a dig. It was an insult to Jesus. And so they're not understanding who Jesus is. And we're going to see that very clearly, the unbelief that they have. Sometimes as Christians, people claim to know you, but they really don't know you. They claim to know me. Hey, you teach the Bible? Uh, You're a pastor? If I was to go back to Whitefield High School 30 years ago, no way. We knew you. We grew up with you. We won't talk about you. But that's how people are. And sometimes perhaps in your family or those that you work with or neighbors or maybe those that you went to school with in high school or college, whatever it might be, before you got saved, they can look at you and say, we know you. What do you mean you're a Christian? What do you mean you're, you're born again? 
And they don't really know you because you are a new creation in Christ. All things have become new. No longer do they understand that you don't have a desire to do the worldly things, that, that you are forgiven. You no longer have the mind of the world that you're desiring and pursuing the mind of Christ. Yes, I have been born again. We know him, but they really didn't because they didn't realize that he is the Son of God. And then quickly I want to point out, verse 3, that Jesus came from a large family, didn't he? I mean, it's pretty amazing. He had brothers. James is one of them that is mentioned. James is the one who is believed to have written the book of James that we have there in the New Testament. He was a leader in the early church. Also, Scripture indicates to us that his, his brothers, and I'm sure as well as his sisters, didn't really believe in him as the Son of God, as the Messiah, until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've already seen that it was his mother and brothers and, and family that came from Nazareth over to the Galilee region, and they thought Jesus was out of his mind. And they, they were coming to get him. He had given himself so much to the crowds that they were concerned about him. And Jesus turned to the crowds and said, you know, who is my mother? Who is my brothers, my sisters? Those who do the will of my father. And so here is Jesus. He had all these half-brothers and, and sisters, and we know that Jesus was born of a virgin. Of course he was. That which is conceived in you, Mary was told, is that of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to bring forth a son, and his name shall be Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins, as we read in, in Matthew chapter 1. We know that Mary and Joseph, after the birth of Jesus, would have normal relations. And the reason that I mention that is because you might be talking with those who really believe that Mary is a co-redeemer or an intercessor. Nowhere in the scripture does it give that indication at all. She was a very special woman, blessed among women. Of all the women in the history of the world, she was chosen to carry the Christ child. But you see, Jesus died for her sins. Even though she was a very special, pure, and holy woman, of course Mary was. But she is not a co-redeemer. She is not a, a mediator. There's only one mediator between man and, and God, and that is the man Christ Jesus, as Paul told Timothy. And when we see Mary for the last time, we see that Mary is with the disciples in that upper room in Acts chapter 1, and those disciples are praying with Mary. They're not praying to Mary. So those are some of the verses that you can encourage those who, who really get into praying, or she's a co-redemptor, uh, she's a mediator. No, she's not. It's Jesus. We go to him. We don't pray to Mary. And there are those who believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, and that's not biblical at all because we see clearly that Jesus had brothers and sisters. So they were not born of a virgin. Jesus was. So here they are. They're offended of him, verse 3 tells us. And we continue reading in verse 4. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled he marveled as you read because of their unbelief and then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching because they did not receive Jesus because they rejected him because they really didn't know him he wasn't honored there in his hometown 
They actually insulted him. And verse 6 tells us that he marveled at their unbelief so he could do no mighty works there. As we look at people's lives, all of us, we know people that we care about and that we love. And they're not believers. There's, there's that unbelief and we think, oh, what God could do in their lives, the miracle of making them a, a new creation in Christ. And I think that's the greatest miracle of all. That the Lord, when we come in faith to Jesus Christ and we surrender our hearts to him, that there is regeneration. We are born again. That we become a new creation in Christ and old things have passed away. And that's the greatest miracle is a changed heart. Oh, what God can do if that person would just surrender their lives to Jesus Christ and come and accept him for who he is and what he has done for them. The forgiveness they receive, a new heart that they have, strength that is received and healing emotionally and spiritually as they surrender to the Lord. The wisdom that they will have now in walking in the Lord as they know God's word. If you would just believe, if you would just turn to him, but there's that barrier of unbelief. But I want to bring it home a little bit closer to us this morning. What about us who are believers? Are we missing out on what God perhaps wants to do in your life because you're thinking, well, God can't do that work. He, he can't change my heart in that area. Uh, he, I'm not going to stand on that promise. I, I think that that promise really isn't for me or he can't bring that promise to pass, whatever it might be. And we end up missing out because we're skeptic because we're weak in our faith because there is that unbelief we see in a few chapters that jesus is going to come down from the mount of transfiguration and there's going to be a demon possessed boy and the father's going to make a beeline to jesus and say can you help me and jesus said believe and he says i do believe but help my unbelief I do believe, but there's some unbelief that is there. And that's all Jesus wanted was for that man in the honesty of his heart to just cast his cares in the honesty that he had in his heart upon Jesus. And Jesus had compassion upon him and helped him and ministered to him and would do work in that man's life in healing his son. Abraham in the book of Genesis, a man of faith, was given a promise that you're going to have a child and through your child abraham is going to come the covenant promise and a descendant of nation of a nation that's going to be great and they waited for years and years and years for that promise to come about and matter of fact in genesis chapter 17 verse 17 abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart when god told him that you know what you're going to have a child in another year and here's abraham he's laughing in his heart saying shall a child be born to a man 100 years old and and sarah who is 90 years old oh that ishmael shall live we know the story how ishmael was delivered that it was sarah and abraham waiting for the promise sarah wasn't getting pregnant and and so she said we got to help god out here so abraham you take my maidservant and have a child with him and that's what abraham did and it, it was ishmael and so here is abraham saying you know what i, I can't have a child at a hundred and sarah at 90 and and oh that ishmael would live only if the work of my flesh would continue on and sometimes we cry that out to the lord oh lord how can you work in this situation 
I got to give you a hand. I'm going to work in this situation. Oh, that the works of my flesh may live. And the Lord said, no, no, Abraham is going to be a child that comes through you and Sarah. And so in Genesis chapter 21, as Sarah would have that child, Isaac, God has made me laugh is what Sarah would say. God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. This time it was a laugh of belief and of joy. And if any of you are here today and you're like that man in Mark chapter 9, or perhaps in Genesis 17 with Abraham and Sarah, there's, there's a laugh of unbelief. There's, there's the honesty of your heart saying, Lord, I do believe, but I'm not sure. I, that promise? Lord, this situation is so big. And it would be Paul the Apostle that would be writing about Abraham's situation in Romans chapter 4. He said, Abraham was fully convinced that what he, that is God, had promised that God was able to perform. And I hope that you take that verse from Romans chapter 4 and that you would claim that this morning and you would say, you know what, Lord? What you have promised, you are also able to perform. And I believe that you want to work in my life. And Lord, please help me with my unbelief or my doubting or my faltering or my weakness in my faith and turn it to full belief. You see, two occasions in the Gospels that we read that Jesus marveled. In Luke chapter 7 at the Roman centurion with the sixth servant, as the centurion would say to Jesus, you don't need to come to my house, just speak the word and he'll be healed. And it says Jesus marveled at his faith. He said, I have not found faith such faith in all of Israel. And then the second occasion is here in Mark chapter 6 when he marveled at their unbelief and he could do no miracles there. Jesus marveled at the hardness of their hearts and as far as we know, he never returned to Nazareth after this. So that unbelief, that barrier to Jesus working in their lives and it's a barrier for him working in our lives as well. And so verse 7, he called the 12 to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. We've already seen in Mark chapter 3 that we read the names of the 12 apostles. Apostle means sent out one. And he would call them to himself and they would be with him and they would learn of him and um, they would walk with him. And then as we see now, he's sending them out two by two at this time, and Jesus would give them power. Now, in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus, after his resurrection and right before his ascension, he said to them that you guys wait here in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you to give you the power. It's the Greek word dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite. There's a lot of power in a stick of dynamite, isn't there? And I'm going to give you the power as the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the, of the world. So the order is very important here. He calls them to himself. They're with him. They're learning of him. And then we see that he would send them. And then thirdly, he would empower them. And that's the order for you and for me as well. He calls us to himself. We come to him. We're saved by him. We learn of him. And then he wants to send us out and he wants to empower us. We go out and we minister to witness, to serve. We need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then Jesus gives them some very specific instructions as we continue on here. Now we know from Matthew's account of this that they would go out two by two as well but 
they were not to go up by way of the Gentiles or to the cities of the Samaritans. That would come later in the book of Acts, that they were to only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We read in verse 8, And he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except the staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Also he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust uh, under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So when you go out, trust that I'm going to provide for you or the Lord's going to provide for you. And you have heard me say many, many times, and I'm going to continue to say it, that where God guides, he will provide. They were to trust God for their needs. Now, in Matthew's account, Jesus said to them, freely you have received, freely give. And that is also something that you've heard me say oftentimes. Freely we have received, freely we want to give. We want to give as much as we can as a ministry. We give you opportunity to give freely here at Calvary Chapel. I don't stand up here week after week and pound the pulpit and say you got to give and manipulate and pressure and all these things. You can freely give. You can freely give as we have an offering box in the back of the sanctuary and over there by you know, the, the information desk. But I want you to be able to free, freely give and to give cheerfully. And that's the way that we see in the New Testament when Paul was talking to the Corinthian church about the churches in Macedonia that had given to that fund that he was going to take to the saints in Jerusalem that were hurting. And he talked about how the churches, the church of Philippi and the other churches that he established there on that second missionary journey in that province of Macedonia, how they gave out of their poverty, they gave out of their persecution, they gave freely, they gave cheerfully, and that's the way that we should give. And not just talking about money, but also of our time and of our devotion to him to freely give so we have freely received we want to be able to freely give to you and that's why we're a ministry that we try to give as much as we can cds by the thousands that we've given away bibles we try to encourage and bless and 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 give in other ways because freely you have received freely you shall give oftentimes people will say well Pastor Jeff, how much do you charge for you know, doing a wedding or, or performing a, a memorial service or a funeral? I, I don't. I don't. Or using the facility. And we just trust that God's going to provide for us that we will be able to continue to give to people as he does provide for us. So Jesus is teaching them a very important lesson that they need to learn as, as not long from now they're going to take the gospel out to the world as they will be empowered by the Holy Spirit coming upon them, but also that God's going to provide for them as they would go out in the book of Acts. I think it's very important for us individually and for us as a church to continue trusting that God will provide for us. And that's something that never stops. It doesn't stop. I know that when we first came to Greeley, Sue and I, we felt the calling of God. We had to trust God that he was going to provide for us. We didn't come up with a bunch of copper in our money bag. It was God bless you, and if God's in it, he's going to provide for you. 
We didn't have a bunch of money that came from a church and we're going to buy you a building and we're going to give you a salary and we've done demographic studies and this is the way you should go. It is you go up with your Bible and you love the people and you serve the people and we started in our living room and we had had to trust God all the way up until today that God's going to provide, that God's going to guide us. When it came to buying this building, same thing. The congregation was a lot smaller than it is today. And as we bought this building, to us, this was, this was just a miracle for us to get. But God provided for us as we went to the Lord and we began to pray. And as we began to pray together as a fellowship. And not only has He provided, this building is paid for. We don't have a mortgage on this building. When it comes to the radio ministry, which to me is just such an important outreach ministry, you realize that the teaching, the going forth of the gospel and the teaching of the word of God can be heard six days out of the week. All in this area. And God has provided for that. But folks, it's, it's not free. And we're just trusting that God wants us to be there and on the radio program. And, and there are those who are coming, second service, that we're seeing more and more people that have heard us on the radio that are coming. Second service is really getting full in the coffee shop and people are parking out there in the field because the parking lot is full. And it's exciting to see. And I believe that we're just beginning to see people come and hear because they're hearing the word of God being taught verse by verse and their hearts are being touched. And we're just trusting, okay, Lord, we're on the air right now. We're just going to trust that you're going to provide as we just continue to be on the radio. We're very thankful for that. On Wednesday, when we are going to go over 1 Samuel chapter 15, but also I just want to share with the congregation, with more people coming, that where we feel like the Lord is leading us, and just for you guys to know, and where he's leading us is to be able to minister to the youth better, and and, and disciple our young people and where we're going forward in worship and all these things because it's getting more difficult for me, for Pastor Jim, with more people and the counseling and all the other things. And we're just going to trust that the Lord's going to provide. But if you have opportunity and you really care about this fellowship, come so we can pray. And we can pray together and we can share our hearts with you about these things. So we trust that where God guides, he provides. It's not a manipulating, it's not struggling, it's just, Lord, it's the work of the Spirit. And what has begun in the Spirit, we don't want to try to perfect in the flesh. So we're to trust him. He wants us to go out, preach that, that people should repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. That was the message that was given to them. And we get to give that same message to others. And so, Lord, help us, provide for us to be able to do that. To tell the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, forgiveness and salvation is now possible through faith in him. So it is Jesus. He is our hope. We have life through him in life abundantly. And Jesus tells his disciples in verse 10, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. If you go to a house that's receptive to your message, be content to stay there, then depart from that place in peace and move on, continuing to trust in the Lord. But then in verse 11, he says, and whoever will not receive you nor hear you, then shake off the dust from under your feet and you move on. Now understand what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that we go to somebody, we with us once they don't receive us and we throw up in our arms and we say that's it no more i'll never be open to witnessing to you ever again 
Because a lot of us, we have testimonies that we witnessed to a family member or friend or a coworker, and they weren't receptive. And so we just kind of pulled back and we waited for opportunities. But some of you have witnessed to somebody for years, maybe, you know, for a long period of time, and then they came to the Lord because of your continuing to pray for them and witness to them. But I believe what Jesus is saying here is don't get involved with this endless arguing with people when their hearts are hard to the gospel, to the message of the truth of God's word. I'll speak for myself, but I, I have never argued somebody into the kingdom. I will dialogue with them. I'll talk with them. I'll show them scripture as long as they're open to it. If they're wondering, there are times where I have to give a, a defense for you know, the questions that they have or whatever it is that they're, they're trying to trick you or trip you up on to give a reasonable answer. But I don't get into endless quarreling and disputes. And sometimes people do that, and it's like, oh, I've been going at it with this guy for a couple months at work, and I really got something today. I'm going to show him. And then that guy comes back with something, and oh, i got to go look. And you know what I mean. And notice that when Jesus... He's talking to religious leaders whose hearts are hard towards his ministry. That he would simply say to them, have you not read? Or it is written. And he would give an answer. And we're to give, again, a reasonable answer, as the scriptures tell us to, to those who have those questions. To have a defense. That's why it's important to know the word of God. But you don't get involved with those who just want to continually argue and dispute, and it goes back and forth. And so Jesus is saying, be wise, be discerning, put your attention elsewhere. You know, there can be times where we just need to kind of shake the dust off our feet and we need to move on. You see that Paul did that in the book of Acts. When the, when the Jews, when he went in the synagogue, were close to his, his ministry, it says that he shook the dust off his feet and he moved on. He says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And if the Lord gives you opportunity to come back and witness to that person, praise God. Maybe he's convicting their hearts. Maybe he's going to use somebody else to come along and minister to them. So use wisdom, discernment. These guys went out and ministered in great power. In verse 14, now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. So as we read about Herod here, this is Herod the Tetrarch. When you read the New Testament, there are actually four individuals who are called Herod. And it's easy to get them confused and all mixed up. You have, first of all, Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled in Judea, the southern part of the country, at the time of the birth of Jesus. He was a terrible king. He was called the Great because he was a great builder. But he was one that was paranoid. He had many of his family members put to death. Matter of fact, they had a saying up in Rome that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. He had a number of his wives put to death, some of his children put to death. Well, Herod the Great, he's the one that made that decree when the Magi came, the, the ones from the east, the wise men from the east, looking for Jesus, following the star of Jesus there in Matthew chapter 2. And they had an audience with Herod, and they said, hey, we're looking for the new king of Israel. And Herod was so upset, and he was so paranoid that somebody would come along and take away his power, he made that decree that have all the male children two years and under put to death in Bethlehem. So that was Herod the Great. Then you have Herod the Tetrarch ruling here in northern Israel. 
at the time of Jesus' ministry. But then as you move into the book of Acts, you had Herod Agrippa I and Herod Agrippa II. Now, Herod Agrippa I was also a very cruel, mean individual. He's the one that had James arrested and put to death. That is the brother of John. And then he tried to have Peter put to death. He arrested Peter, put him in prison, and then an angel come and freed Peter. And it is in Acts chapter 12 that we see that as it was Herod Agrippa I that's in the amphitheater in Caesarea and the men of Tyre and Sidon are, are yelling at him and saying, you know, you're a God, the voice of a God is speaking and there's Herod in his pride and arrogance taking it all in and his royal, you know, robes and all of this and all of a sudden, bam, he goes down. God struck him, eaten of worms. So that was Agrippa I, and then there was Agrippa II. Paul gave his testimony to him in that same amphitheater, and it was Herod Agrippa II that said to Paul, you almost convinced me to be a Christian. And Paul said, oh, I wish that you would, and all who are hearing me. So back to this Herod. Herod, or uh, the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, is also what he's known. He had a fascination with John the Baptist, and the rest of the chapter tells us why Herod had John the Baptist arrested and put to death. But when Herod heard, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead, as we read in verse 16. For Herod himself has sinned and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his father Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. So the reason that Herod had John the Baptist arrested was because John rebuked Herod for taking Herodias as his wife. We know from history that Herod went up to Rome to visit his brother Philip. And while he's there, he falls in love with his brother's wife. So they run off together back to Israel. And what was interesting also, as history tells us, is that when he came back with Herodias, he was already married, Herod was. He was married to a daughter of an Arabian king. So he sends her packing. And that Arabian king was so upset, he was actually going to take some troops and go up into the Galilee region and start a war. And come against Herod. But then Rome stepped in and said, no, you're not going to do that. And they put a stop to it. So here is John the Baptist. He says to Herod that what you have done is sin. It's immoral. It's not lawful in taking your brother's wife. And John was one that stood for righteousness. He was a man of, of godly integrity and honesty. And he had the courage to stand for truth. And I want to remind all of us that in this world that we live in, when you, like John, stand for righteousness and live in godly integrity and honesty, you may not get ahead in life. Matter of fact, it costs John his head. And there may be those that come along, oh, they're not going to lop your head off, but it seems like they sure want to. And so here John is cast in prison at this time, and verse 20 tells us, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him, and when he heard him, did many things and heard him gladly. Herod had this fascination with John. He also had this fascination with Jesus. Because Matthew's account tells us that it was Herod that desired to see Jesus, wanted to see him. But he has this fascination with John, and so to defend his wife's honor, he had to have John arrested, and Herodias wanted him killed, but Herod ended up protecting him because of this fascination. He listened to him. He knew John was a holy and just man, that Herod's conscience 
was no doubt bothering him as he heard John speak to him. He feared John. Matthew's account says that he also feared the people. So that's one of the reasons also that he didn't have John put to death, because the people saw him as a prophet. So here's a man full of fear, his conscience weighing on him, and now we read about the events that led up to the beheading of John the Baptist in verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. In verse 24, so she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples verse 29 heard of it they came and took away his corpse and laid it in the tomb Herodias hated John wanted him dead and then verse 20 the opportune day came when it was Herod's birthday he has this feast big birthday party Herodias knew that her husband was a man full of carnality and lust when people look at us do they see us more like John, a man of godly integrity and character? That truth is in us, standing for righteousness, or do they see us more like Herod? Someone who's full of carnality, full of lust, given in to his fleshly desires. What do they see? And here is Herodias. She takes advantage of the situation. She knew her husband was a carnal man, so she has her daughter dance. And so Josephus, the historian, tells us her name was Salome. Go and dance. And here he is. He's drinking wine. He's in front of his guests and his daughter, you know, Herodias' daughter's there dancing. And it wasn't like she's down at the Elk Lodge doing the cha-cha or the chicken dance. She here, the indication is, she danced very seductively to where it pleased Herod. And he said, I'll give you whatever you want, up to, as Mark records, up to half of my kingdom. And so she goes, Salome, to her, her mother, Herodias. What should I ask for? I want the head of John the Baptist, and I want it now, and I want it on a silver platter. And because, verse 26, notice the oaths, plural, he said it more than once in the presence of all these people and these guests. Whatever you want, I want the head of the Baptist. He sent the executioner to have him executed right away. And it says that he was exceedingly sorry. He was intrigued with John. He was convicted by John. I believe he knew and noticed that excellent spirit that was in John. The same kind of thing that is said about Joseph of the Old Testament and Daniel of the Old Testament. Remember in our study of Daniel? That it was Nebuchadnezzar, it was Darius. They recognized that he had an excellent spirit. That is the spirit of God. And that's what I pray for us, is people would see an excellent spirit. That is the spirit of God in our hearts being worked out in our lives. 
But here, because of Herod, his oaths, and because he said it in front of all his guests, he gave the command. He put the Baptist's head on a silver platter, gave it to Salome, who would give it to her mother. It's a grisly scene. I think that the wickedness of Herodias is comparable to Jezebel of the Old Testament. She set her husband up so that John would be put to death and so John would be silenced and the voice of truth and righteousness would no longer be heard from John. And Herod, who really was a coward and a fool, it says that he was sorry. He was sorry because he was a man that was controlled by his fleshly desires. And I'll tell you the truth on this. If any of us are controlled by the fleshly desires, there's going to be many a day that we're going to spend being sorrowful. Will be sorrowful. I did things and I have said things that I regret and experienced terrible consequences. And it's important for us to understand that as Christians, we're not controlled by the flesh. We're to walk in the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit of God. Galatians chapter 5, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We're to live in the Spirit, let's also walk in the Spirit. And I know that the flesh will rear its ugly head up. And it's at those times, folks. When the urges, when the temptations, when the fleshly lusts and desires pop up, to yield and submit it to the Lord and cry out to Him and say, Lord, help me, help me, help me right now. This is a bad scene here. And it's a bad scene if we allow our flesh to dominate us. It will just plain be bad news. So a daily being crucified to the flesh, surrendering ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit, let him empower you to walk in the Spirit. So what happened to Herod? What happened to Herodias? You know what history tells us? It would be a nephew that Herod had. That would be Herod Antipas I. And right after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Claudius became the emperor of Rome. And so Herod Agrippa I had a good relationship with Claudius and so it was Claudius that said, I'm going to give you most of Herod the Tetrarch's rule. And so it would be rumored, it would be whispered among the people that Herod the Tetrarch, he was a wannabe king. Because most of his power would be diminished to where he really didn't have any. And it was given over to Herod Agrippa I. And so Herodias told Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, you need to go up to Claudius, you need to tell him, I want my power back, I want my kingdom back, and you need to tell him off. And so that's what Herod did. And so what Claudius, the emperor of Rome, did at that time is he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Herod the Tetrarch, I'm going to banish you away on a faraway province in Rome. And so him and Herodias were banished to a faraway province, not really to be heard of, and they ended up tearing, they ended up, dying very terrible, terrible ways, which I won't go into this morning. You know what's true for us? If you pursue your fleshly desires, I want more, there's going to be a dying that takes place. A dying that takes place in our souls and in our spirits. And you won't be satisfied, you won't be fulfilled. There will be a deadness. And it is only, as I've said, walking with the Lord and knowing Him that any of us experience true happiness and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. Walking in the Spirit. Staying close to the Lord. Depending upon Him. And looking to Him.
So the disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus, as Matthew tells us. And then we're going to see that Jesus is going to say to his disciples, let's get away to a deserted place. Maybe you need to get away. Maybe there's some struggles, attitudes of the hearts, whatever it might be in your life. Maybe you just need to get away. To turn off the TV, the computer, the iPads, the iPhones, you know, Facebook, all these other things, and get away with the Lord. To a deserted place, that is a quiet place. And do business with the Lord and say, Lord, help me. And he will help you as you surrender your heart to him because we can't do it in and of ourselves. And say, Lord, I need your help to live for you, to walk in the Spirit, so I won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Father, we thank you. And we thank you that your love is so good that you tell us these stories that are recorded for us to learn. Father, I pray that there, if there is anyone in this sanctuary or sitting out in the coffee shop at this service